The postponed 17th Venice Architecture Biennale asked its 112 participants to consider the question, how will we live together? A question originally posed in 2019 by curator and architect Hashim Sarkis, far before our collective 2020 experience. He originally asked participants to imagine spaces in which we could generously live together. Answers from 46 countries materialized into the exhibition of 2021. After a year spent living apart, the theme is both hauntingly fitting and refines our disconnection. This is Alexandra Siebenthal, the producer of our podcast, and I'm excited to be back with the second installment of our special two-part Design in the City episode, covering the long-awaited event. It is one that has signaled something, a community eager to reconnect and a deeper understanding of just how interwoven we are with our spaces, spanning the full spectrum of the human existence. The exhibition explores that spectrum across five scales. Among diverse beings, as new households, as emerging communities, across borders, and as one planet. For this episode, we have broken it down into three parts. The first features none other than the 17th Biennale curator himself, Hashim Sarkis. Hashim is the Dean of the School of Architecture and Planning at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, or MIT, also the founder of Hashim Sarkis Studios. Joining him in conversation is New City's Director of Applied Research and Resite's own visiting curator, Greg Lindsay, to discuss the meaning and aims of this special biennale. Sarkis's challenge, How Will We Live Together?, was initially posed with reference to the societal impacts of climate change, political turmoil, wealth inequality, among other global crises. But it became even more pertinent with the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. Lindsay, along with his teammates at the MIT Architects Future Urban Collectives Lab, proposes answers through their installation, Open Collectives, which illustrates how the synergy of the digital and the urban can foster and strengthen new communities. We were excited to host these two in conversation. Following Sarkis and Lindsay's conversation, we will explore accessibility and hear from the curators of the British Pavilion, entitled The Garden of Privatized Delights, and wrap up with the curators of the Austrian Pavilion, entitled We Like Platform Austria. Both sets of curators tackled what can often be a rather serious topic regarding accessibility, along with the binary that exists between public and private space but with a bit of wit and sense of playfulness that ultimately makes the message on accessibility accessible in itself. But first, let's hear from Sarkis and Lindsay. Hashim, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Uh, Obviously, this has been the strangest Biennale, not just because of the pandemic, but because of the extra year the participants had to prepare, including my own team. And so I'm curious how, obviously, beyond simply the fact that the pandemic, uh, you know, denied us the ability to live together for much of it, so much has changed on the other side of it. The world is in multiple speeds. Nations have have quarantined themselves off. We've seen uh, bubbles in housing markets around the world. I'm curious, coming the other side of the pandemic, 
How does architecture and design start to grapple with these questions? Why is design the proper tool for dealing with things like the financialization of housing, with borders and quarantines? How do architects assert themselves as having the agency to deal with these problems? This extra year was actually a very challenging one, as you mentioned. Initially, we basically huddled each in their own world trying to come to terms with what it could do to our lives, to our work, and to the Biennale, but that was tertiary almost at that point. But slowly as we began to understand better the situation and what it might entail, and after we postponed the second time until May 2021, uh, we in a way pressed restart and started talking again. And this extra year gave us more space to talk with each other not just uh, curators to individual participants, but across among participants. And it allowed also the national curators to talk among themselves almost for the first time because we've had the opportunity to do that. And that created very interesting synergies, uh, exchange of ideas uh, at a very practical level, comparing notes as to how people are going to be able to adjust their work to uh, fit the new schedule, to fit the new shipping restrictions and all. And uh, I also think that that extra year gave us an opportunity to simplify, refine, improve on many of the installations. And uh, because of restrictions on travel and shipping, it also allowed us to reduce the carbon footprint of this event uh, quite dramatically, I would say. And I really hope that these changes will stay for Biennales to come even in normal times. Uh, this extra year also gave every one of us the opportunity to understand a little bit better, actually much better, the role that architecture plays in our daily lives. Each one of us all of a sudden became a sonographer of the space behind us on Zoom. Even though we say, well, we're in isolation, but actually, that scene behind me represents me on Zoom. And all of a sudden, architecture became much more present. We entered into people's houses, people's bedrooms, people's uh, living rooms. And even when they didn't want us to look into them, they put a scene of something else, which was also invariably architectural or landscape. So we became very attentive to that aspect of our lives. We also began to be much more aware of distances we now can measure quickly with our eyes six feet or three feet or four feet, depending on our setting. And we became much more aware of how tables are arranged in a restaurant, how a house can also become an office. So it may very well be that we've been in isolation, but we have become much, much more attentive to the role that architecture plays in shaping our daily lives. It's true, but the, but the flip side is also true in the sense of these digital tools, how we're recording this now, you know, always existed, but they have sort of asserted their supremacy in this over the past 18 months. Um, you know, we've seen, you know, these housing shortages, again, in the United States and elsewhere have sort of, you know, led to um, people fleeing cities. I mean, the whole notion of how, how will we live together has been challenged. We've seen people desperately try not to live together at all by, you know, purchasing the largest homes in the rural countryside they can. We've seen 
uh, you know, a year of stories about whether this is the end of cities as we know it. I'm, I, you know, I, I've, in reading the reviews of the show, of course, you know, the critics say that they ask so many questions, but, you know, there's a, a, po- a paucity of, of answers and solutions to this. And I'm curious where you see the Biennale pointing to, what is the future on the other side of this? We're, we're, we're putting the pandemic behind us, at least in some places, but, but what futures op- have opened up for us? The Biennale is not about the pandemic. It is about the causes that led us to the pandemic. It is about climate change. It is about and how we live together with other species and the planet. It is about increasing political polarization and how we can live together across these political divides. It is about growing economic differences and how these are really eroding the idea of a common good and how we can re-engage that through architecture. It is about mass migrations and how we can whether citizens, nomads, tourists, or refugees find common spaces to live and share. All of these are factors that led us to the pandemic, but this Biennale is not about the pandemic. The pandemic will probably go away. Hopefully it will go away very soon. And we will forget about the two feet, six feet, eight feet. But if we do not address these major issues, other pandemics or other problems will come back to haunt us. That's what this Biennale is about. Now, you asked me about the end of cities and I want to remind you of a very similar moment that took place during the Second World War when cities were being bombed and people were leaving central cities elsewhere to go to countrysides and all. And there was a very lively debate in among urban planners and urban designers about where will we be after the end of the war? Some were saying, well, we will now continue to inhabit the countryside. We will be spreading around because of new transportation systems. And others were saying, no, we will come back to the city as a way to uh, rebuild and reassert the urban presence. I would say that after the war, both happened at the same time or at different degrees in different settings. And I feel that we will probably face the similar situation now. I do also want to point out that those who fled the city are the ones who could afford to. And uh, therefore, if anything, the pandemic or this phenomenon led to an even bigger divide between the rich and the poor. The rich house and the poor house have become much more strongly distinguished uh, through this public health crisis. Yes, and that's my question about this is, you know, is is how can architecture help us repair this inequality, help us repair these quarantines, these bridges? Again, sort of is design, how is design the right tool for these crises uh, versus, you know, dealing in in global taxation rates, in in all, all sorts of other sort of policy decisions as well? How does, how does design reassert itself as a primary tool in helping to, again, sort of bridge this and help us to think about these scales? Um, this is the sort of thing architects are always asking themselves or always asserting the fact that they are the makers of cities and that they are the ones uh, with the sort of power over the public realm to do this. And, and I'm curious, you know, at, at a time where people turned away from the office buildings and turned away from the cores of cities, how does architecture as a profession uh, bring its sensibility back to solving these issues? As architects, we are many things. And I would distinguish between that and planners or urban designers, who are also many things. But uh, primarily, we are the custodians of the contract, the contract to build. Uh, 
and therefore we represent the client in terms of how uh, a project gets to be put together. And therefore we convene structural designers, city employees to help us on the permits, uh, mechanical engineers, uh, programmers, uh, contractors, and designers as well. Sometimes we include interior decorators, sometimes we include other skills. But our skill is in convening and in synthesizing the input of all of these people into a solution or a resolution of a particular uh, project. Uh, that skill set is a very important one and it can extend to many situations. We do not solve all the problems alone, but we orchestrate the solutions of problems. That's one aspect of our agency. The other aspect of our agency is that we are, after all, citizens. And there's a certain activism that comes with that and set of responsibilities that comes with that. Sometimes we can use our tools as architects or skill sets as architects towards that. But sometimes we act as if we are simply citizens. And uh, the confluence of the two sometimes is important because it allows us to bring to other citizens a certain level of awareness of their rights to space, their understanding of space. That's very important also as an aspect of our agency. But another extremely important aspect of our agency, Greg, is that we are also artists. We express, we represent, we uh, make visible certain phenomena that others cannot see. And this is another level of the agency of architecture, which is this idea of the architecture imaginary that is very much on display at the Biennale. When dealing with uh, issues like climate change, of course, we cannot act alone, but we can make visible the way that political boundaries have ravaged the Amazon. We use architecture representation tools to do that. We also can help imagine what could be the future of the planet through certain changes in uh, whether in terms of carbon emissions, in terms of uh, connectivity of green spaces, in terms of the impact of geoengineering and what might do to the planet. We help imagine alternative futures. And in that, whether it's at the level of an alternative and better house or an alternative and better planet, we propose and say, what if? And it's in that skill that we also can change the world by proposing alternative worlds. Interesting. One idea, one question that comes to mind is, is going back to the elongated time period of planning the Biennale. What, what ideas at the outset now seem in retrospect absurd to you? What has been discarded? Um, you know, we've talked about whether we're going back to new normals or going back to a, whatever normal is. Um, I, I'm curious, you know, what did you and your team having, having all this time to rethink the Biennale from scratch? Um, what did you discard as no longer true or no longer worth keeping and, and proceed from there? Uh, we did not have the opportunity, luxury, or even the difficulty of having to reimagine the Biennale from scratch. Uh, the first time we postponed was February 2020. We were three months away from the finish line. Many people had already packaged their uh, projects in boxes and they were on their way to Venice. Uh, we did have the luxury to refine the exhibition and that helped a lot. Uh, uh, sharpened the dialogues that we were trying to create among projects in different rooms, in the way we set them up, in the way we framed the question for every room. Uh, it also allowed many of the participants themselves to go back and rethink some of their projects. Uh, this is where the refinements happened. I do not 
think that the projects changed beyond questions of public health, accessibility, touching, etc. Uh, and some projects did, especially the section related to existing cities and how they live together. Some sections, these projects did include uh, material on how the cities coped during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. You, you've asserted in other interviews um, that, and that, that space is defining our social relations as the pandemic has shaped us, right? So the notion of social distancing, the notion of how uh, architecture is sort of defining how we interact during the pandemic. But I'm curious if the opposite isn't also true, that uh, that you know that social uh, social relations and the mental states that many of us have spent the last 18 months in will also affect our architectures going forward as well. And I'm curious your thoughts on this about, you know, how our spaces shape us and in turn, um, and, and what, what do you think if anything, there will be a lasting legacy of pandemic era architecture. There's been, of course, so much discussion about the Spanish flu leading to Bauhaus. Is is there a, an architecture of our time that emerges out of this on the other side? It's too soon to say at certain level, especially that most of the signs lead to the observation that the new normal looks very much like the old normal. Uh, however, a stronger awareness of public health is actually a good thing. A stronger awareness of the fact that we have rights to public open spaces in cities where we don't have the luxury to have open spaces around our houses is a good thing. The taking over of sidewalks, of parks for public activities is a good thing. And the uh, realization that a collective common good is necessary in order to define cities So the privatization of public space, which has been increasing over the past 50 years, is now somehow been confronted with the reality that these public spaces are needed for leisure, public health, social distancing, uh, education, all of that. And I, I feel that these kinds of changes will probably stay with us for a little bit longer and will probably settle into a different understanding of what the public realm is. Well, there raises questions about what what the what the public realm is now on the other side, or who these new clients might be. You mentioned climate change, for example. Um, you know, Rafi and our team has talked about the fact that you know the 20th century, the public was the client leading to social housing and leading to these programs. And under the neoliberal turn, the markets became the client and drove that as well. And it raises questions about whether there could be new forms of clients, new ways to initiate projects, whether that is new ways to understand climate change, whether that is sort of non-human participants, I think is superflux really gets into in the, in the Biennale and others. And I'm curious, how do we think about, uh, on the other side, about new ways to initiate projects, new ways of practicing architecture? Because that theme runs through the Biennale as well. How, how might we reimagine the profession itself and education as well to grapple with these problems beyond simply the client, whoever they might be? Uh, as you know, the Biennale is organized into five scales. Uh, from the scale of the body to the household to community to borders and across borders to uh, the planet. And in the section as emerging communities, we deliberately use the term community, not cities or neighborhoods, in order to keep it open to possibilities of communities manifesting themselves spatially in in forms other than cities, or uh, that we can understand and identify communities. Let me give you a very concrete example. In the section as emerging communities, uh, we invited a group from Armenia called TUMO, T-U-M-O. Uh, TUMO is an after-school program 
to help kids in relatively underprivileged communities in the city of Yerevan, but now it's a national program and actually international, to uh, become more digitally educated, to learn about uh, coding, to learn about uh, data visualization, to learn about animation, to learn about uh, AI. And in order to enable those communities even more, they planted their after-hour schools in areas close to these communities, but strategically near empty spaces where they can create parks or next to a highway so that they can create an overpass to connect them better. And over the years, the success of the program has become such that they are not only providing support education-wise, they are providing support to the communities urbanistically, architecturally urbanistically. And now the government is turning to them whenever they have a need for an urban design intervention to help frame the project so that it is more inclusive of the communities. This is the kind of agency that emerging communities are looking for. Architects to understand better the nature of their needs and to turn them out to become less about one sector, meaning education, and more about the connectedness among the different sectors. The fact that the government is now using the agency of TUMO to help in urban improvement is a testimony to the success of this group of architects, programmers in creating a, a very important agency for architecture. Interesting. Well, beyond the scope of the Biennale, I'm curious what's on your radar as an educator, as a curator in these new types of hybrids. Uh, obviously, our project of the Biennale dwells upon this, these notion of hybrid physical digital communities. And there's so much attention, of course, to blockchain, non-fungible tokens, distributed autonomous organizations. There's so much attention in these notion of non-physical communities and also the need for rethinking housing and new types of projects that go beyond the sort of single-use types. And again, uh, you know, in the context of your work at MIT and as a curator, I'm curious to thinking about what new forms, what new hybrids, what new projects do you think offer perhaps some of the most opportunities or avenues for architects to explore, to rethink you know, what the physical digital means or what, you know, housing means in this context, given the functions that we folded into housing over the last year. Um, how is this affecting sort of the curriculum at MIT and the questions that you are asking? The digital has not replaced the physical. If there's any evidence in this Biennale to, uh, to that relationship, it is about how they complement each other in different ways. Uh, at one very basic level, the production of drawings and now of models is through digital means. At another level, the presence of the machine is, and the computer as well, is very necessary for the activation of many of these installations. They depend on the machine and on the computer a lot. And at another level, the visualization that the digital brings amplifies some of these experiences rather than replaces them. And so I feel it's not that one is taking over the other. It's that we are at a point right now where uh, we are finding complementarities and continuities in a way that we do not see the seams or the ruptures or the generational shift anymore. It's actually quite smooth. Interesting. 
Um, well, I, coming back to that, I mean, what, what does a, your students at MIT and a younger generation of architects who are looking at this, I, I'm very curious about sort of how they are perceiving these relationships, this complementary between the physical and digital and on the, again, the other side of this. I mean, many students, MIT's included, have spent time doing virtual learning uh, by default. And, you know, I, while I personally am in favor of face-to-face and believe in the power of, of space, of design that way, um, it's been challenged on many levels. And, I, and again, I'm curious about, you know, how is that, how does that get represented in the curriculum or how does this get re- represented in the projects and the studios um, that the faculty will pursue? We've talked a lot about the digital entering into our, our production of architecture, the CAD CAM, et cetera, and 3D printing and, and all of that, the kind of that, that is a discussion that happened and that was important and that is continuing to impact the production of architecture and the teaching of architecture. Because now the possibility of a student making prototypes, physical prototypes out of their projects is much stronger than before. Uh, that set of tools and equipments have entered into the workshop, entered into even the studio space. Behind every student, sometimes you find the 3D printer. So the the presence of this new technology and industry is in the studio. But another level I think which is going to be even more important is the possibilities that these technologies are bringing to changing what we consider to be contingencies or externalities to the design process and what we don't. For the past century, I would say, we have come to acknowledge that the important factors in a design project are formal composition and arrangement of space, structure to a secondary level, but ultimately it's all about the composition. And that factors like context, not always, but sometimes, factors like the mechanical, electrical, the environmental uh, budget constraints are seen as contingencies or as secondary or tertiary factors of the building. The technologies that we have right now allow us to have all of these factors built into the design making from the get-go. And all of a sudden, I think, we are beginning to discover that they are not contingencies at all, but they are crucial to the shaping of architecture. And especially with the sustainability pressures on us, we have to rise to the responsibility and to the occasion. And therefore we are beginning to even strengthen the capacity and the agency of the architect as a synthesizer uh, of all of these factors together, thanks to this new technology. This is a direction that I'm hoping we can see improve and change the, the profession by changing the education of the architect. It's interesting. I, I'm reminded of a, a, a line by Frank Duffy, the office architect who once asked whether architects were, were slaves at the mill in the sense of they were bound to a system that led inexorably to the production of physical space, whether that space was needed or not. And it's interesting because your Biennale raises particular questions about, uh, it, it, it looks at so many issues beyond simply that amount of space. And I'm, I'm curious about what, what directions architecture should head in beyond simply that construction of space to look at these relationships, these contingencies and ways to reconfigure the system of how we produce the built world. And if that opens up particular avenues on the other side of this uh, that could lead the profession in interesting ways. 
there is definitely in the Spinale, but also in the air among young architects, the interest in going beyond designing objects to designing systems. Now, that's very challenging because systems are sometimes invisible and how do you design them? The aesthetic evaluation of a system is very hard. We know what is a beautiful object, or at least we dabble with qualities that we think are describable as beautiful and not. But a system is a tough thing to measure that way. More importantly, the performance of a system is difficult to measure because the discrete nature of the architectural object allows us to contain it, to fathom it, to measure it, to assess it. But the system depends on so many other factors and variables and indeterminate uh, futures that it becomes very difficult for us to assess. But we're beginning to take on this challenge and uh, introduce it into our thinking. Obviously, by system, we mean environmental systems, uh, you know, the urban system, uh, the connectivity of the object or the architectural intervention to a larger network in which it, to which it belongs and its impact on it is going to be important, but it's very difficult to measure it right now. We're entering into that space. And you can see that in the Biennale. Indeed. And I mean, it gets to the heart of so many of the, the wicked problems that, that confront the world, climate change being one of them, obviously, and, and a world perhaps of, um, yes, of, of mounting adversity and diminishing resources in some areas. W pivoting to an example of that, I wanted to ask you about Beirut, obviously, as a Lebanese architect, and we've had a prior episode looking at uh, the destruction in Beirut and the challenges the city and the nation of Lebanon will face given the collapse of its economy over the last year. Um, I'm curious about how you would intervene there and where it might be spots for intervention in the context of so much of the city has to re be rebuilt. So much wealth has been destroyed because of currency issues. H how, again, does sort of design intervene or find spots to begin that process given so many systems in perhaps free fall right now. I, I'm, I'm curious how you look at that problem and think yeah. where can we begin to solve that? The explosion that happened in Beirut last August happened at about one kilometer away from the city center in the harbor of Beirut. The past reconstruction of Beirut in the 1990s uh, was in the old downtown a downtown that was historically very vitally linked to the harbor. But over the years of the reconstruction and for because of the privatization of the process of reconstruction and the not so friendly relationship between the port and the company that took control of the reconstruction, uh, the harbor was separated from the downtown. Uh, that created a rupture in the fabric of the city that till today we feel that downtown is sitting in the middle, but without that vital economic connection. Uh, in the meantime, the harbor grew on its own because of container shipping and other uh, needs and isolated itself even further from the residential area that was behind it, and even from the transportation networks that fed it originally. Uh, the explosion made us aware of the proximity between the harbor and the residential areas of Beirut and the downtown. And it made us, as we are beginning to rethink the reconstruction of the harbor and the areas around it, aware of the possibilities of reconnecting the two. The opportunities for Beirut are to correct the mistakes of the previous reconstruction 
by connecting the economic vitality of the city with its residential fabric and with its commercial center. That's where I feel we should put our emphasis. Interesting. Um, well, as a last question, I want to return to the Biennale. Um, it's been interesting uh, in terms of the arc of the Biennales over the last decade from, uh, you know, Aaron Betsky's show, very focused on form. There was a turn with curators such as uh, Alejandra Aravena, who, of course, is also in, in your Biennale, um, to explore some of these pressing social issues. And I thought it was interesting at the time it was announced that your theme of how will we live together followed quite naturally from free space under the previous curators of looking at these, you know, rethinking of social relationships. And looking ahead, uh, you know, any advice you might have for future curators or thinking about where the where the Biennale should go, what are the questions it should grapple with on the other side of it? What, what is the larger story that you have provided a chapter in that the Biennale is trying to tell and how the Biennale can be a force for thinking through these issues? Because of course, its critics argue that the Biennale is, you know, a party for architects, a, a wasteful exercise, et cetera, but it's, you know, unlike any other event and its ability to convene. So what should it be convening for? Every field, every discipline, every profession should have its parties. Uh, and the poor profession of architecture doesn't have that many. Uh, so Venice has, since the 80s, provided that opportunity for architects to come together to discuss and, and show what possibilities they are thinking about for the future. That's hugely important, and that proved to be the case when everybody converged on Venice for this opening of the Biennale. Uh, there were 7,000 people who were there. Usually there, were, there would be 12,000 at the opening weekend. There were 7,000 on, on this one, just one week after the borders opened in Europe. This proves that people were really interested in coming together, seeing what young architects from around the world are pr proposing, trying to do and uh, benefiting from this to have discussions about the future of architecture. These are irreplaceable. And the platforms that the Venice Biennale, but also other Biennales provide is hugely important. Venice has the experience, has the space, has the uh, visibility. And uh, that's what we benefited from in being able to turn around and make a Biennale happen despite all of the financial and travel and public health constraints. So yes, there are sometimes continuities among biennales, but then there are sometimes ruptures. Uh, a, a part of that is the decision of the president of the biennale in terms of whom they appoint as curator. But a part of that is also the decision of the curators themselves in choosing the theme. Uh, there are clearly strong continuities as you observed in terms of the relation between this Biennale and past Biennales, uh, particularly when it comes to Ravenna's Biennale on the uh, social dimension, particularly when it comes to the very early or kind of forerunners of the Biennales by Vittorio Gregotti in terms of the relationship with the territory and landscape. There's a lot of territory and landscape and planet here. Uh, when it comes to where the future of the Biennale lies, I am so happy that it's not my responsibility to determine that. Uh, but I also feel that it is part of the Biennale's mission as well is to surprise us, to uh, introduce different angles on architecture from different periods. Invariably, uh, Greg, the Biennale is a kind of time capsule that tries to capture 
the situation, the moment at its best, both in terms of what its problems are and what it could propose as being inspiring uh, projects and possibilities for architecture. There are biennales that have been much more reflective on the present condition and even on the past. And by that, I point to Dimitri Porfiros's, uh, uh, sorry, uh, the first biennale, the, uh, the uh, presence of the past. Uh, but, and I, I feel like some biennales try to represent the moment at its best through built projects. It, this biennale is not about that. It does include built projects. It does include uh, projects that have proven to be valid and uh, and deployable, like the two more projects that I mentioned earlier. But it also includes research. It includes uh, theoretical propositions, experiments, and uh, widely visionary projects. This finale is about the future. Garden of Privatized Delights is the exhibition at this year's British Pavilion, directly addressing the question of how we will live together by exploring the increasing privatization of public spaces. Laced with proper wit and humor, curators Manage Verghese and Madeleine Kessler explore tangible and intangible examples of inclusion as they exist in between those realms of which we live our lives. They use their platform to examine the kinds of spaces rooted in British culture, asking questions that challenge the polarization of private and public in a self-described joyful manner. This polarization is one that often leads to divisions within British society, yet can be understood as universal. Their vibrant approach makes it all the more accessible, inviting a wider audience to the conversation. Questions like, could the pub become more than a place for drinking, but a versatile center for civic action? How can rethinking facial recognition technology free our collective data for public benefit? Could the high street go beyond commercial interest and become a place of diverse exchange? Or can we design new spaces in the city for teenagers to occupy on their own terms? Manager Verghese and Madeline Kessler are the founders of Unseen Architecture, and have been commissioned by the British Council to represent the UK at the Venice Architecture Biennale 2021. I joined the both of them in a conversation after having returned from Venice. Hi, I'm Madeleine Kessler and I'm an architect and co-creator of the British Pavilion with Manager Verghese. And hi, I'm Manager Verghese and uh, together with Maddie, we run a practice called Unseen Architecture that's really interested in this topic of privatised public space, but also how to engage people in um, having more agency around how their cities and spaces are kind of accessed, used, owned and experienced. And... Um... Do you want to know how we first met? Sure. <laughs> yes. Um, it just because actually it, it kind of feeds into the pavilion. So um, we first met when we were studying at the Architectural Association in the queue for the ladies' toilets. 
which we love as a meeting place because toilets are actually really important in allowing access to public space. And it's something that's not really spoken about enough and is actually sort of fed into uh, one of the installations within our pavilion called called Toilet, uh, which looks at opening up uh, the toilets in the basement of the British Pavilion to the public for the first time. Um, and then after that, we taught a summer school together in 2015, all about the pub, where we we're looking at the pub as an interior type of privatised public space um, and a positive example of privatised public space, uh, which sort of goes back generations uh, within the UK. Uh, but pubs are closing up and down the country. And with that, we're sort of losing this kind of communal uh, facility, which is sort of the extension of people's living rooms, the modern day public toilet. You know, it's much more than just a sort of watering hole where people go to drink. It's a real kind of community space. Um, And so through that, we became really interested in this topic of uh, privatised public space and how the public and private uh, spaces within our city sort of work together. Um, And that, again, has really been the starting point of exploring this topic within the British Pavilion. I feel like I kind of have a funny story with the toilet um, aspect of the pavilion. I was with two other women, one of which was my colleague, and we exited the pavilion and one of them was expressing that she needed to find um, a bathroom to use. And for some reason, they did just go around the side of the building actually looking for the toilets and then realized that that was actually part of the pavilion. And we just kind of laughed and sort of, you know, talking about that, that actual lack of accessibility. But it must have been so frustrating to like then see a toilet on display, but not actually be able to access or use it, which is kind of what, well, originally we were hoping to open up that toilet in the basement and Mm -hmm. then we couldn't because of legislation Mm -hmm. and kind of Italian building code that prevented us from doing so. But we still decided to put it on display in order for um, people to realize that there are so many toilets that could be made open, like made accessible to the public. Um, if it wasn't for these policies that are holding us back and these these kinds of weird demarcations between public and private, and uh, that actually things like toilets in the basement of the British Pavilion could really be a really useful resource for people visiting the Biennale, and hopefully that'll happen in the future. Yeah, I mean that's exactly what this exhibit's all about. What you and your friend experienced. <laughs> Um, And we were super interested because we went over to Venice when they were installing the British Pavilion for the Art Biennale. And that was when we realised that the British Pavilion was one of the few pavilions which has toilets in its basements. And we found that it was this real social hub because you had all these other people from other pavilions coming to use the toilets. Um, And we were really interested then in how we could start to open up the toilets Uh, to allow other people uh, to use them rather than just those working in the British Pavilion. And as Manager says, yeah, we were just confronted by all these building regulations um, because they're not fully accessible and the way they're kind of hooked up to the system, um, which, yeah, then provoked us to sort of allow this weird glimpse in, uh, which provokes this conversation about all the red tape, uh, which prevents us from allowing um, us to open up existing facilities. And it's not very human, is it? We thought it was funny and had a laugh about it. And I think it was a very well executed point um, that, you know, like really was a tangible experience. That's really great feedback. Thank you. You're welcome. So on that note, I guess we kind of started with the end, but um, maybe we can, <laughs> yeah. we can kind of go in and talk about, um, and, you know, all the different aspects of public versus privatization that you explored within um, the your exhibition. I really loved the sort of triptych of concepts that you put together um, to to express that. 
So the, the title of the British Pavilion this year is The Garden of Privatised Delights, and that came from our main inspiration, which was this triptych by the Dutch painter Hieronymus Bosch called The Garden of Earthly Delights. And we were really inspired by the three panels of the triptych and how this kind of middle ground of earth is framed between two extremes. So the utopia of heaven on one side and the dystopia of hell on the other. And so when we were entering the competition for the British Pavilion like two years ago now, um, we were actually really interested in um, how we could reframe this through our version of the painting, The Garden of Privatized Delights, that looks at privatized public space as this really rich opportunity for architects to work with the public and intervene. But that also sits between two extremes. So the utopia of public land before the Enclosures Act of the 18th century here in the UK, and then the dystopia of total privatization as this kind of future that we seem to be heading towards. And so how can we act now to kind of open up uh, these privatized public spaces and really rethink them in terms of who can access them, who can use them, who can own them, and how can we make them kind of more adaptable to the challenges we face today? Um, and even to start, and I really loved your use of humor um, kind of within the all of the exhibition that, um, you know, when you walk in, you notice the sign that warning uh, contains strong or violent language. And I actually took that quite seriously, like, oh, okay, you know, these regulations that they have to warn people about it. And then the first message you're greeted with is uh, no public access res residents only. And I was like, Oh, okay. I see. I see where this is going. Um, so uh, maybe would you want to uh, talk a little bit more about that? Um, like walk us through the um, exhibition itself. Yeah. So um, as you enter through the doors of the British Pavilion, you're entering into that middle ground of the triptych. So you're entering into that weird kind of private public space that we're all living in today. Um, and you're sort of confronted by these railings. Um, and it's, you can see there's something behind the railings, but you can't access it. And as you say, there's, there's sort of a sign saying residents only. So you're kind of forced on into the next room and you have to sort of go around the whole pavilion until you find yourself back inside the garden square. And that kind of entrance experience is really setting up the issue with privatised public space that it's not accessible to everyone. And what we really are exploring is how can we make our public spaces more accessible and more inclusive. And so you're taken on this journey through the pavilion. You sort of follow this garden path uh, through the Garden of Privatised Delights. So you, the next room is the pub. And then you go into the Ministry of Collective Data, which is sort of exploring uh, collective um, ownership of data and facial recognition technology. Um, and then you go on to the high street, which is looking at how uh, sort of there's this really high rate of closure of shops on the high streets at the moment. So how can we rethink our high streets to be kind of real kind of social centres of, of care? Um, and then into the Ministry of Common Land, which is looking at bottom up uh, sort of approaches to land ownership and citizens assemblies. Um, and then into Play Without Grounds, which is looking at how there's just nowhere in our cities for teenagers and young people anymore. So how can we design spaces with them uh, rather than for them to allow them to take ownership um, of these kind of frameworks within the city? And then eventually you find yourself back into the Garden of Delights. And this time you're sort of inside the square 
the railings have sort of disappeared and they've been repurposed um, into pieces of furniture. Uh, we were really inspired by how in World War II, in fact, a lot of the railings around these garden squares, which you find in Georgian cities across the UK, like London, Bath, um, they were they were taken down to be melted for ammunition. Um, and what you actually found was uh, for the first time, anyone could use these garden squares. And there's loads of really amazing texts from the time from people like George Orwell uh, talking about how amazing it was to suddenly mix with people you'd never otherwise meet. Um, but then unfortunately, after the war, a lot of the railings were reinstated, uh, which then closed off these spaces once more. And so we're looking at how, you know, these really simple design moves uh, can make a huge difference to people's experience of the city and at the same time, kind of the importance of legislation and policy uh, within this. Um, and then I suppose um, the signage that you mentioned, uh, that's kind of a recurring theme throughout the exhibition. So we were really interested in how often in privatised public spaces, you have a lot of signage telling you what you can't do. So you're always told you can't, you can't play ball games, you can't do this, you can't do that. Um, we were interested in how can we actually encourage people to kind of be creative and, and sort of take ownership of their spaces. Um, and so we've got all this signage sort of encouraging you to do things. Uh, so to listen, share, act in the high streets, uh, to plant seeds in the garden square, uh, to play in the playground, you know, to graffiti in the toilet. Um, and so, yeah, we really wanted to just kind of flip that on its head. Uh, to make your experience of, of public space uh, much more enjoyable. And the painting becomes this really interesting visual reference. So in addition for, to it being our kind of conceptual inspiration, it's also something that we constantly referenced in the design of each of these spaces because we wanted you to be able to recognise spaces that you would find in a typical UK town or city like the Garden Square or the pub or the High Street but we also didn't want to just reconstruct these as, you know, perfect replicas. We wanted to show like how architects and the role that design could play in um, actually rethinking these spaces to open them up, but also make them maybe more adaptable to new uses and more diverse programs. And, um, and therefore they have like this kind of surreal color scheme taken from the Bosch painting, but also these playful and sculptural forms. And we worked a lot with our graphic designer, Kellenberger-White, um, to think of also typefaces. So they came up with this really fun, um, almost like finger-painted font for some of the signage that's in inside the garden square or inside the spaces once they've been kind of rethought. And like Maddie was saying about, you know, encouraging you to, to be creative and to act in different ways, they captured that through this kind of the act of as though you dipped your finger into a pot of paint and like, made the signage yourself and I think that links back to this idea you you, you picked up on of, about humor it was really important to us that people coming to the exhibition really felt like this was their space to explore and use as they see fit and we didn't want to be too didactic about what you can and cannot do in the space or what you should be doing and instead um, we actually want to use the exhibition as this kind of experimental testing ground where we're actually hoping that over the, the duration of the Biennale, we can learn from how people occupy these spaces and use them in different ways. I, I suppose, like you say, it, you know, this is a very serious topic that we're grappling with. Um, but we wanted to kind of grapple with it in a really kind of joyful way um, to kind of challenge everyone to become part of this conversation. Because when it's sort of tackled in this very kind of serious academic way you lose a lot of the audience and it's really important for us that we have everyone involved in this conversation from community groups to landowners to developers to policymakers to architects 
And one way for us to do that is to create these spatial immersive experiences that everyone can enjoy, everyone can sort of experience, everyone can test out different ways of using it. Um, and the pavilion felt like a really exciting opportunity to create this testing ground for these installations, which we can then take back to the UK and start to uh, place in privatised public spaces around the UK and really start to test how we open up these spaces uh, to become more inclusive. I really felt all that. And I, I that's, you know, I really appreciate your attempt to widen that conversation by making it accessible. And I, I think that's a big reason why it, it, you know, impacted me the most. And I can imagine it will resonate with a lot of people. So uh, I hope so. I mean, the idea is also that, like, maybe that when we were initially kind of designing these spaces, our hope was that this, the pavilion becomes a kind of platform for a wider project. And that although it's the British Pavilion and we're looking at kind of quintessential British spaces in many ways, um, privatized public space is such a global phenomenon. And we, although you, we might be putting on display a pub or a high street, we hope that people can find parallels with their local context and examples of privatized public space that they would recognize in their own environments. And that a lot of the kind of strategies that we're suggesting of how to open these spaces up could be kind of applied and taken forward um, regardless of where you live and the public spaces that are near you. And we've also, I think even our exhibition catalog, um, we've tried to design it as a kind of manual that will allow people to kind of think about their public spaces differently and also see that they have a lot of agency in kind of transforming them and using them differently. I mean, our whole exhibition was sort of inspired by widening access to this conversation. And we sort of recognise that a lot of the time architecture exhibitions, they're quite dense and difficult to sort of absorb and understand unless you're in that very sort of academic architecture world. Um, so there's a lot of text on walls, a lot of references. And we really wanted to step away from that to create these experiences that everyone could understand. Um, and we were quite interested in also how the second biggest group of visitors to the Biennale are Italian school children um, so you know how do we get like younger people who aren't architects to also engage in this exhibition because it's so important to have them as part of this conversation about their city. So uh, aside maybe from like you know your story of how you met um, do you have any other personal experience um, that really inspired this um, in any of these aspects that you've included high street the pub um, private gardens? I mean so we both studied at the Architectural Association, um, which is a sort of part of an old Georgian square. And I think what we recognised when we were studying there is that there's this kind of really big green space at the centre of it. Um, and it's now surrounded by what were townhouses, but are now sort of academic institutions and offices. Um, and very few people were able to access that square. And at lunchtime, you just see everyone sitting around the railings, um, eating their lunch sort of on the pavement when there was this piece of like amazing greenery right at the centre of the city just there. And I think that probably kind of subconsciously bedded itself in our minds um, as we were studying. Um, and then when we were choosing the typologies for the pavilion, that was just kind of like a really obvious one for us because it really helps to very clearly set out uh, the kind of real issues uh, with privatised public space. 
Yeah, and then as Maddie said previously, like we, the kind of our interest in privatized public space grew out of the summer school looking at the pub. And that was something that really resonated with us because we have felt that the pub has often become like the kind of modern day public toilet. And in our own lives, you know, we have often met together and, and brainstormed ideas in the pub and, you know, used it as everything from a living room to a waiting room. And that was like a really rich topic that we explored in the summer school, but then we wanted to expand on in the pavilion. And um, I think, you know, it's been a, a kind of ongoing trend, trend over the last several years, if not decades, that a lot of these spaces in the UK are, are like at risk of, you know, disappearing because of, you know, a lack of support or funding. Um, and also because of the way cities are changing. I think the high street is under threat because a lot of retail is moving online. Youth centers are closing because there's a lack of funding to support them. And so these kinds of spaces that are so important to bring people together in the public realm are just disappearing. And so it felt really urgent that the pavilion address these topics. Um, and we personally have like, you know, experienced like the lack of public toilets and the need for these kind of social hubs that can bring people together. So um, what we really wanted to do is to like, you know, bring people that were already doing interesting research on this topic. So we were really lucky to work with five other practices in kind of um, bringing to life this kind of concept around privatized public space and see what, what could change or what could be done differently about breathing new life into these spaces and inventing some new ones. So the, the government ministries in particular, they're a kind of way to propose a more bottom-up approach to decision-making rather than top-down and to look at the tangible assets of land versus the intangible assets of data and really think about how like the public can decide how land and data are used for collective benefit. So for us, it was really important that we took our personal experiences and that of our team and then translated it into something that had longevity, but also that would resonate with a wider group of people. I think as well, like rethinking the role of the architects within the city um, and what it means to be an architect today. So how architects, like, we, we do more than just build. Like, we're great communicators. And how, therefore, can we bring different people around a table to transform our cities? I mean, so often I've worked on a project and you'll just be like, why is the site even here? Like, by the time we get involved in these conversations, often it's far too late. So quite, I think we're quite interested in exploring how can architects become part of the conversation at a much earlier level, at a much more kind of strategic uh, level, so that we can really be part of these uh, kind of visionary processes right from the outset, right the way down to the final sort of detailed design. That's a... That's a great point. And it's, it's something we're trying to explore as well at Recite of just kind of the importance of having lots of different um, interested parties uh, involved in it. In, in regards to just, you know, again, public private space, um, you know, some might argue that it's only f fair and I, I use air quotes um, to use a property if you take care of it. But how, how might you inspire those who, who are using public space to care for that space collectively? Um, I think it's a really yeah. interesting question because um, so much of 
the argument around what should be public and what should be private and, and even privatized public space, the way that they're currently being designed in new developments, it's often around issues of maintenance and security that like governs like how they're designed, but also how they're maintained. And encouraging that sense of care is really important. And we felt in the research that we've been doing that it's linked to a sense of ownership. So if you feel like that's your space, you're more likely to care for it. And, and that's why, like, even through the signage and, and through little touches like that, we've really tried to think how we can Im instill this sense of ownership in people by making them feel like this, like, without necessarily having to own this, the, this land. Like, how can you feel like you have the power to do certain activities there or to um, take certain decisions about it collectively? And a lot of the, across the different rooms, a lot of the research, but also even the making of these of the objects that you see within the spaces have been like kind of done collectively. So in the Ministry of Common Land, there are these big paper mache heads that were made by school children. And when they were making them, um, they were told stories about the kind of influential figures in um, the discourse around public land. So everyone from Jane Jacobs to Colin Ward. And then they got really inspired. And then when they were making these heads, they had this additional significance. And then the fact that then those heads now sit in this Ministry of Common Land and they look down on you as in the space of the ministry, as you know, people come together to take decisions about their spaces, it feels really powerful. And um, there's a kind, it, I guess, the design almost manifests this kind of process that, you know, the more you know about these spaces, the more you know what you're able to do in these spaces, the more you should be able to care for them. Yeah, I mean, civic pride is just so important. Um, I don't know if you you know how in Tirana, in Albania, the mayor there, um, he sort of came into power and he noticed there was like a really high crime rate, but he had next to no budget uh, to do anything with. And so what he decided to do was paint, uh, paint, paint the buildings, uh, lots of different colours and sort of really bring joy into the city that way. And it saw a reduction of crime rates because people started to feel much prouder of their urban realm. And so we're really interested in how do you actually allow people to take ownership and, and feel that level of pride? Um, and it's been really interesting over the past year, particularly um, in the UK uh, with all these lockdowns. Um, and you started to see people getting to know their neighbours for the first time in new ways. They've started to get to know where they actually live um, for the first time in new ways and they started to sort of reclaim pieces of the city and pieces of space that that weren't being used before so by planting trees or, or, or flowers and sort of rewilding the city by taking over the streets once again um, you know the street was the original kind of playground and then with the motor car uh, became too dangerous for children to play in but you know over the past year there's been a reduction in traffic so once again people could kids could reclaim the streets and start to use them and so we're really interested in how do you give the public the kind of tools and agency to be able to do more of that and start to really reclaim their public spaces so that they transform into places that are what they want to see there's no kind of one size fits all model so it's about how do you um, allow people to kind of reclaim those spaces and so much of the issue around privatized public space comes down to this issue of ownership um, so often the, you, you don't really know what looks like a public space to, for all intents and purposes as you pass by it in the city, often ends, ends up being privately owned and you only find out that it is owned by a certain corporation or a landowner once you try and do something on that land and you usually get stopped from doing that or you find a signage that tells you what you can't do. 
And um, we were really interested in this project called Who Owns England um, by Guy Shrubsall and Anna Powell-Smith that was trying to map land ownership across um, England and um, and also like then extending into Wales. And uh, they they were really surprised to find out that when they started the project, only around 50% of all land in the UK was um, documented on the land registry. And even then, it wasn't really clear who owned it. And the ownership of land is really important because it obviously governs like what you can do, but also um, like where vacant land is, like could communities take that over? And so that was really important to us on the one hand in terms of making that more transparent, but then also this sense of ownership that can kind of give people uh, a strong feeling of care for their immediate environment and and the kind of agency to change their public space. So it's kind of those two two sides of ownership, like a more transparent understanding of what it means to own land and then a kind of greater sense of responsibility over your public space that we're trying to encourage through this project. And I suppose as well, sort of on the role of the architect, uh, thinking about the level of control an architect has um, in a city and in public realm through design and how often it's about sort of creating this framework that then allows people uh, to take it over like communities can come and use that in ways that you never would have imagined those are often the most successful spaces in the city so in London for example um, there's a place on the south bank just south of the river Thames uh, which is sort of built as a sort of brutalist uh, theatre complex and at the lowest level it's been taken over for, for decades now by skateboarders um, and it's sort of like a theatre where people come and watch all these people skateboarding but it's also a really important part of sort of skateboarding in culture and there's lots of graffiti there and stuff and um it was kind of it was going to be sort of um they were going to throw out the skateboarders a couple of years ago and then this huge kind of uh, protest movement started up to say you know this is actually a really important part of our city now and I think for me anyway that's like sort of a, a kind of sense of this being a really exciting successful public space because the community have really taken ownership of that um, and it's something that no one ever would have imagined would have happened. Wow. Yeah, the, we had actually something you know, quite similar um, in Prague with the skateboarders in the, the same neighborhood. And actually, that um, is a big reason um, why I asked the question The same, um, with the mayor of Tirana. He actually spoke um, at Reesite um, a a couple of years ago and kind of what he was saying about giving people reason to have, feel ownership of their space, I thought was really powerful. So um, I think just to transition a little bit um, something else um, that you featured in your exhibition about teenagers and how they're often left out of the design process. Um, where I grew up, public space for teenagers was literally the shopping mall Um and I, I see that even happening here in Prague, um, in kind of the outskirts of the suburbs of the city. It's the same in London. I grew up in London and most of my teenage years were just sitting by a fountain and a shopping mall. And I think that's something that VPPR, the rim designers uh, for that rim, have been super interested in, is how often when people are designing for teenagers and young people, they design very sort of active spaces. So it'll be like skateboarding parks or, or basketball courts. But actually, there's a whole swathe of teenagers, um, often female, um, who just want to like sit with their mates and do nothing. And so it's like, how do you create those frameworks for them to inhabit, uh, which don't feel threatening as well? Because often you'll find when you have groups of teenagers in a shopping mall, they'll just kind of get ushered on because no one wants them to be there. 
And so it's how do you create those spaces that they can belong and they can sort of take ownership of and, and feel like it is theirs. Um, so, yeah, I, I think we completely um, agree with you there at the importance of sort of intergenerational spaces, but also spaces particularly for young people. And I suppose as well, over the past kind of decade or so, uh, Manager and I together have uh, taught like a number of workshops for teenagers and young people, for people like the Saturday Club Trust. And through that, we've just found it so inspiring to work with young people to understand how they think about their city and often sort of spaces that we would have assumed they felt very safe in, they might feel dangerous in, and vice versa, spaces that we would assume they wouldn't want to hang out and they do. Um, I think it's really interesting to um, work with them to understand what kind of spaces they would like to see so that we're not just making sweeping assumptions um, and providing spaces that they don't want to be in. I read an article the other day about uh, this group of teenagers who there was like a skateboarding park that had been built for them in a corner and the female teenagers were skateboarding away from that park and nearer a road. Um, and it turned out the reason they were doing that was just they felt safe and nearer the road because they were just scared to be somewhere that was completely cut off where no one could see them in case something happened. And I think having those conversations in the design of our, our public realm is really important so we don't sort of make those mistakes of uh, providing facilities that no one's going to use. Which hopefully you were able to experience in the pavilion because um, VPPR worked with um, a lot of teenagers to record a series of interviews that you can listen to as you kind of move through that climbing frame structure. And it was really important to all of us that um, that it wasn't, you know, people speaking on behalf of teenagers or architects trying to design for teenagers, but rather um, teenagers kind of shaping space on their own terms and like in their own words. And I think that it's funny that, I mean, I grew up in India and I think uh, it's a kind of global phenomenon that teenagers end up just getting stuck in like the leftover spaces or like in shopping malls because they're so vast. They tend to have these pockets of space where even if you get pushed out of all the shops, you can just, as Maddie was saying, like hang around a fountain or sit there. But it's kind of almost encouraging teenagers that you have to buy something in order to stay in a space and like creating spaces where they can be themselves and make noise and hang out and not feel like there's a time limit or a price tag attached to it is so important. And um, we were really keen to that, that they didn't get forgotten in, in this discussion around privatized public space and that we really think about them as like, you know, we, a, a huge group of people that, that use our cities that don't really have any specific spaces for them to enjoy and, and have a sense of ownership over so, yeah, we're, we're quite curious to see, like, how teenagers actually visiting the pavilion, especially because, as Maddie said, like, we were fascinated by the fact that the second largest group is um, visiting the Biennale as Italian school children. So we're quite keen to see, like, how they actually start to use that space and appropriate it in different ways. Yeah, I guess teenagers are our future and they have so many valuable things to say. So it's sort of taking stock of that and making sure everyone takes a step back to realise that and really value those voices. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a, it's a little bit insulting um, that oftentimes it's, they're not taken seriously. So I guess the aspect of so the Ministry of Collective Data kind of looks to the future of in a way where, uh, you know, all these other aspects of it are quite tangible. Who has, owns data, and especially in terms of smart cities and, and in our public spaces, kind of is a bit maybe more intangible for some people. No, it's just, it's funny because when we um, started doing this project, it was obviously before coronavirus was a thing. And, 
you know, um, we were just really interested in kind of the intangible, like kind of networks that sit in cities and actually, you know, inform like what data is like collected about us as we use public space, but also like issues of consent, like how aware are we of how our data is captured and what it's used for and who owns it. So it's those similar themes of access, use and ownership that keep coming up, but in a kind of more invisible way. So you're not even aware of it. And um, it felt like, you know, it was something that was speaking to the future. But I think uh, the pandemic has kind of fast forwarded us like maybe into that future. And because we spend so much of our time now on online on these kinds of platforms, um, it's it's really blurred even the digital kind of realms of public and private. And the, we're so much more aware, I guess, of, um, you know, people seeing into our homes suddenly. And like when we join public events, it's like a very different kind of concept of what's public and what's private. And, you know, who knows what like Zoom is doing with our data. And I think what we were trying to do in all the rooms really is to break this binary between public and private. And in a similar way, technology isn't necessarily inherently bad. It's just, um, I think you, it's it's mainly like the transparency around who, who owns it and how it's going to be used. And someone on our team told us a really interesting story that actually made us think about this really differently about how when you're waiting at a bus stop, you don't, you would like to know the data from the bus company about when the next bus is going to arrive at the bus stop. But you probably wouldn't be as happy if the like the bus company was collecting um, your data to find out like how long you'd been waiting at the bus stop, which bus you were waiting for. So a lot of it is about power structures and like who holds the data and who has access to it. And, you know, facial recognition technology is something that's really like considered to be automatically negative when it's used in privatized public space. And it has a lot of racial bias and gender bias embedded into it. But then at the same time, like depending on how it's used, um, it, like, you know, in, in India, there was an article saying that it was used to locate 3,000 missing children in a short span of time. And so it's really about kind of thinking of different ways to apply this and, and, and being more transparent about how it's used. So in that room, you're kind of tracked when you enter. But then what we're really trying to, to show you is that if you consent to this being your data being captured as part of a public database, you could actually decide how that could be used. And it could actually be used to benefit like changing the design of our cities to better serve like who actually uses them and like how they use them. So it's trying to push at this idea of, um, I guess, yeah, as you were saying, the future of smart cities and how to think about that in a more bottom up way. Yeah, it's, it's really, a, it's just crazy the amount of data we're all constantly giving over and we don't really know who it's to or what they're doing with it. Um, it's so like it's not transparent at all in the slightest and I think a lot of what we're looking at in this project is how land ownership isn't transparent data ownership isn't transparent how do we therefore allow this kind of collective ownership of this data so that we can collectively ensure it's used for public good and benefit rather than things that just are quite evil where it, where you know it can all go horribly wrong um, and so there are some really interesting examples for example there's an app called city mapper um, it's a bit like google maps which people use to find uh, sort of directions to go places and they started tracking where are people trying to go to that they don't have direct bus routes um, and then out of that, they found where to start putting on sort of temporary bus routes and at what times to do that as well. Like what times are very popular times for people to do that. Um, a few years ago as well, there was a really interesting protest in Spain 
outside the Spanish Parliament, where ironically um, the Parliament with the Spanish government were trying to introduce this new law uh, against people protesting outside of the Parliament. So instead of physically protesting, there was this holographic protest, which allowed people to be kind of digitally present in the space, but not physically present there. And that feels quite exciting that suddenly you can start to have a physical presence somewhere without physically being there. So the kind of potential for that in allowing accessibility for people to protest and things like that without having to physically be somewhere is is super interesting. Um, And I suppose we're kind of really interested in this kind of boundary between the physical and the digital. And this past year, we've sort of all been thrown into this digital world, but it's going to be super interesting going forward to see how we sort of grapple uh, between the two. Absolutely. And I think it's going to be one of the biggest conversations that we have in like the next decade. Um, But all very good points. Thank you so much for sharing. So definitely someone told me the other day that a uh, Zoom are recording absolutely everything. Every single Zoom conversation is being recorded. But no one knows what they actually want to do with that. It sounds like they don't even know. They just know at some point in the future it will be really useful data for them. And so it's just crazy to think that that's the level of like sort of documentation and data kind of ownership that we're giving up every time we we have a Zoom call. I'm sure all the other platforms are doing it too, if Zuma. Wow. So maybe an underlying theme of all of this is is belonging. Um, so in your opinion, the feeling of belonging, um, what, what creates that within these spaces? I think, I, I mean, that feeling of belonging, I think you've hit the nail on the head. That is ultimately what we want everyone to feel in their urban environments, that they do belong. And for us, that is about giving people that sense of ownership, that inclusivity, that accessibility over their public space, uh, the kind of power to transform public spaces around you, to provide spaces that you want to see and you want to use. Um, You know, it's ultimately really creating inclusive, accessible spaces that are for everyone and everyone kind of has that sense of ownership and, and therefore wants to care for it and feels a part of it. Yeah, I think belonging, I guess, means different things to different people. And, you know, we wanted to think about what does it really mean to access a space? Like, even though on the one hand, there's physical barriers that prevent you from accessing certain privatized public spaces, but there's a lot of intangible barriers that make people not feel comfortable to walk into a pub or um, to spend a lot of time, you know, in a shopping center or in um, spaces on the high street. And how do we actually address those? Like, how do we kind of be more inclusive in who we're designing for, whether it's people of all ages, genders, abilities, backgrounds? And so that was something that was really important to us, like that it's it's not about, I guess, trying to create one size that fits every solution and every person. I think it's about um, really trying to think about like what are spaces that you'd like to spend more time in that um, have a range of activities for different people or could be cross-programmed at different times of the day. And so even in the Garden of Delights, like when you get back into in, inside of it, there's lots of different types of spaces that you know maybe different types of people would enjoy, um, but that would allow you to spend more time in those kinds of spaces that often you feel like you have a kind of time limit on. So whether you want to sit and spend some time alone and just contemplate or um, meet friends and have a conversation, 
or, you know, cook together or play. There's a whole variety of things that people of different ages and across generations might want to do together. And I guess I think inclusivity goes hand in hand with belonging. And that's kind of what we we're trying to do across the different spaces in the pavilion, like create different different approaches that that kind of bring those ideas together. Yeah, I suppose it's it's this kind of making everyone feel welcome and listened to. And I think the high street of exchanges in particular actually really picks up on, on these kind of themes of belonging. So the high street's kind of split into this uh, kind of listen, share act. So listen, you sit in this barber's chair um, and you listen to the sounds of Sheffield High Street. And that's all about how when you pay to get your hair cut, you're not just getting your hair cut, but you're also getting a conversation with someone, which can be so important, um, especially if you're like an old person who, you know, it might be the only conversation you have that week. Um, and then the next uh, part of the installation is about sharing. And that's uh, based upon a kind of project called Sheffield Food Hall um, in Sheffield, uh, which Studio Polpo, the room designers for that room, uh, were involved in. And Sheffield Food Hall is this pay-as-you-feel project. So um, the food hall sort of takes waste food from surrounding cafes and grocery shops. Um, and then it make they make meals uh, that anyone could come and eat. And you just pay whatever you can afford, whatever you feel. And then as part of that, they also have sort of um, kind of workshops, uh, dancing classes. It's kind of completely transformed as this community space. And all the time you're just paying what you can afford and what you can feel. Um, and so this kind of barrier between volunteer and consumers is blurred. And I suppose that's kind of this ultimate feeling of uh, belonging for a community because you're accepted. Anyone can go there. Anyone can do whatever they want. And, you know, you don't have to be um, of a certain standing of society, of a certain group. You know, it, it's super inclusive. And another nice example is this big banner that you see in the Ministry of Common Land. Um, which is something that's part of the room designer of that space, um, public works as practice. Um, they do these things called situated images that try and document like what happens at community meetings, because often it's people sitting around and just sipping cups of tea. But what they were trying to show is actually the bigger ideas and the kind of the the kind of agency that's embodied in those conversations that then leads to lots of spaces in the city being transformed. So they created this amazing um like almost tableau vivant um over the course of a day where um they got different groups of people that have been working on this project in um south london uh, over several years to come together and um kind of reconstruct historic scenes collectively make some of these like fantastical props and you almost see like a kind of time lapse as you move across the banner of all these different ways in which different groups of people have been um, engaging with each other, but also with these different sites to really rethink what these spaces could be. And all the people kind of involved have actually actively been involved in transforming the site over time to create adventure playgrounds, community gardens, community kitchens. And so the image really captures that. But it's also like it was a really amazing day because we got to go be part of it. And it was right when lockdown rules eased. And it was like the first kind of social gatherings. It was like both a celebration and this kind of incredible collective making of an exhibition artifact rolled into one. Yeah, it's those thresholds, isn't it? Because it's things like the pub, like even though we've said the pub is like the modern day public toilet, not everyone will feel comfortable just going into the pub and you still have to sort of buy a pint to then be able to use the toilet. So it's how do we break down those thresholds so that, you know, everyone can use a space no matter what. Wow. 
and the, the pub is sort of exploring that uh, as a room it, you know it's looking at going beyond just being somewhere uh, for drinking and somewhere that everyone can use I think that's all the questions I really have um is there anything else you um feel like we didn't talk um touch on that you you might want to speak about or add to the conversation that you feel is is needed I think maybe no, like the the fact that the exhibition's meant to kind of provoke questions rather than necessarily provide solutions. So the main kind of text in the space, or like the only text that we really try to keep in the space other than the signage, are these questions in each of the rooms, kind of in, inviting you to think about pubs, high streets, garden squares, like all, all these different examples of public space in um, a new and exciting ways. And just to... to get you to like maybe to apply that to um you know your own public spaces but i think the overall question that the exhibition is asking is really why can't all public spaces be designed as gardens of delight so we hope that that's what people take away with them yeah we're really inviting everyone to become part of this conversation and that's why we've got all these questions because we want everyone to be part of this it's not about architects just suggesting what all the solutions are it's about all of us working together to transform our cities and our urban spaces so that they are more inclusive and that they are gardens of delight well i definitely got that from that i really loved it right. and i i love the, <laughs> the questions it stimulated and i think that was you know, you hit the nail on the head there. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Oh. Honestly, like, yeah, it's it's been so great to speak to you. And like, it's amazing to hear your kind of feedback from the exhibition and how it resonated with you. Yeah, it's a really like lovely way to kind of see whether it worked or it didn't. Yeah. Because I guess we've been thinking about it for so long. And, you know, it's been it's it's been quite a process to put the exhibition together. So it's like really exciting to hear your experience having visited it especially as we haven't been able to go out there ourselves yet. And it's just amazing to hear that this conversation is transcending borders. Um, and it's not just a, a sort of British UK conversation. This is a really kind of important international conversation about our public space. It absolutely is. And it really, you know, it connected a lot of dots even for me. I can't say enough uh, nice things, but, um, you know, really the pleasure is all mine. So um yeah thank you <laughs> well hopefully we'll be able to meet properly someday and continue the conversation I would absolutely relish that thank you yeah we would love that too thank you so much that was really enjoyable thank you yeah, um, yeah and it made us think about so many different things so um yeah it's a kind of ongoing project in so many ways <laughs> I think it's a, a conversation that needs to continue to happen and I will say again I, I really think just how you addressed it using humor made it so tangible. And I felt like those were the most powerful um, uh, uh, takeaways that I, I, I took from it. Thank That's you. That's really lovely to hear. And I, I think coming out of the past year, I think humor and a sense of optimism about the future of these public spaces and how we can all come together is just so important. So, um, and it's really nice that that resonated and that it's a theme kind of across the whole Biennale because, yeah, we have to be optimistic going forward. Yeah, we want to create more joyful places. And, uh, yeah, I think we love addressing things uh, through kind of both a serious and more lighthearted approach. Like, that's how you get the most interesting conversations.
This year's Austrian pavilion, entitled We Like Platform Austria, addresses a fundamental yet overlooked impact digital technology platforms have on contemporary architecture and urban development. Curators Peter Mortenbach and Helge Musamer turn the pavilion into a platform in itself to challenge the global monopoly exercised by platform enterprises and the imagination of our future spaces and habits. The curators created bold, catchy statements that catch your attention and stimulate reflection into how these platforms have influenced our lives and particularly our spaces. They used the forum to exhibit dozens of other contributors from around the world across several different mediums. Combined with bold graphic statements such as access is the new capital, data is a relation and not a property, and the platform is my boyfriend that are literally begging to be posted all over Instagram. A massive wall primed with various drawings of popular urban features, often installed in cities all over, are presented as a kind of a la carte catalog and matched with some cheeky descriptions that slightly poke fun at such trends for their ubiquity due to the pervasiveness of these platforms. But it is in that power of humor and arresting statements that bring an otherwise abstract concept into something impactful and digestible, along with a cohesive message that can be absorbed through any number of the exhibited offerings. I had the pleasure of walking through the pavilion with Helge and Peter as they shared their ideas behind the concept. Please note this was recorded on location at the Biennale, and there are plenty of organic sounds to accompany the recording. I'm, my name is Peter Mortenbach, and I'm co-director of the Center for Global Architecture. I'm a professor of visual culture, and I'm really interested in things to do with visuality, but also to do with the ways in which we organize ourselves in the world, be it network structures, hierarchies, markets, what, what have you, and platforms are just one typical form of organization today. I'm Helge Mühsamer. I'm one of the directors of the Center for Global Architecture, which is an initiative that we founded some years ago, which really um, pursues the aim of providing a platform, speaking of which, to bring together new kinds of research into emerging spatial realities. So when we look around the world, we can actually realize that there are many shared spatial experiences nowadays. And how can we learn from each other when we try to understand these new types of spatial environments? So that's one of the goals of the Center for Global Architecture, and that's the main arena of my work right now. The title of the project is Platform Austria, and what we talk about is Platform Urbanism. So that's just two sentences that I easily said, but <laughs> what does this actually mean, you know? And can we also show the architectural dimension of that. So we thought uh, very long and very hard about also the scenography of an exhibition, how to communicate this. And once you delve uh, uh, into the whole complex coming together of all the different factors that may and constitute the phenomenon of platform urbanism, one realizes very quickly that it, it's indeed enormously complex. So there's so many different layers that all co-interact and coincide. So we've realized that we have to start with a very clear message, and a message that you cannot escape. So Absolutely. when visitors enter the pavilion, you have 
needed it, the juxtaposition between those mm -hmm. two slogans, one about access as the new capital and the other one about the platform of my boyfriend, they kind of, again, also there's a meaning which is perhaps easy to comprehend, but they're also kind of confusing. And what we've realized is when we also uh, kind of connected this with the topic of uh, that Hashim Sarkis has uh, suggested about mm -hmm. thinking about how we live together, but at the end of the day, architecture is really about very simple things. Yeah. So it's about providing shelter. It's about providing accommodation. And what shelter does is that it keeps unwanted things away. So in a way, one could also argue that architecture is an intervention in the natural, if we want to say that, flow of things. So whether it's rain, cold, enemies, unwanted mm -hmm. people, architecture creates spatial structures that keep these things away from us. So it's also a way, a regulation of access. So who can come, what can come to us, what cannot come. That's one part of it. And the other, so the, in terms of access, and the other part is about with whom do we want to share this shelter? What community do we want to be with? And what other kind of human people or other um, entities do we want to be together? Mm -hmm. So these are really two very primary questions posed to architecture. Now, in relation to platform urbanism, what we argue here is that it's still about the same questions, but they are organized in a different way. So digital technologies are, have now taken over, mm -hmm. to some extent, the role that previously very material structures, material infrastructures played, and it's now digital technologies that regulate the flow of things, they regulate access. And by doing so, they also become extremely powerful. So that's very clear, of course, we might also know about the debates about you know, data, who owns data. There's a huge struggle about around digital technologies. Mm -hmm. The second kind of layer in this kind of scenography of the exhibition is to also point to the fact that even though it's not digital technologies that have taken over the regulation of flows of things and the, the kind of guidance and the direction, it's not that this new form of organization does not also have architectural forms. And what we will see when we come to the site pavilions is that there's actually a whole plethora of new architecture, the multipologies that have emerged and that influence and, and kind of shape this new architecture, this new city, these new platform cities. The question, though, is how are these new architectural forms conceived of? Mm -hmm. It's no longer the, you know, the classical genius of the sole architect, mostly male architect in their office, framing up these new forms, and it's no longer the mantra of form follows functions. It's different values that shape the new architectural forms. And so what we want to kind of ask is, First, you know, what is it that creates these new architectural forms? How do these new architectural forms come into being? If we then look at the catalog of all these different architectural props, why do they look like this? What is it that it directs it? And then we've also come to realize that it's all of those new forms of architecture very much geared towards fueling the notion of attraction of making things attractive, of speaking to us, which relates to this intimate aspect of the platform as my boyfriend is, the world around us is kind of furnished in such a way to appear attractive to us so that we are 
wanting to connect with it. And that has to do with the particular character of platforms. Even if we say that digital technologies have now become so powerful, platforms are a particular kind of digital technology. They are a co-produced technology. They are not just working top-down. They are relying on our collaboration. So it's us that make platforms work and make platforms tick. So we need to be drawn in. We need to be seduced. And we've, it's been really interesting also these two days of the Biennale opening, talking to people and how they also have many kind of other recollections of, yes, how this new world that is emerging is always kind of seems to be geared towards creating this promise of this wonderful new world that we want to be part of. And then people say, well, why do we, if we talk about the container villages, for instance, why do we want container villages? What's so great about container villages? I'm sure Prague has one as well. I know a student of ours, and she made this project about the, the new marketplaces. And here, I think, is it the north, uh, the railway station close to the eastern railway station, or north is, but I don't know, but there's this project of a market. Yes. Um, actually, really funny. So the founder of Resite founded this market. Oh, wow. But we were, and that was one of the things when we were talking, you know, seeing some of the the, the things you have on the wall over there, particularly yeah. with the shipping containers. And yeah, like, it, it was an interesting juxtaposition because yeah, it's like, we've, yeah. we've done that, but and it's so something to explore. Also people did want to do that because it, actually the origin of this new platform urbanism mm -hmm. is very much grounded in counterculture. Mm -hmm. It initially, platforms was, were, were all about these ideas about self-initiating a space, mm -hmm. a different, a third space, as it were. Mm -hmm. And so many of these container villages also originated in that, that people said, well, how can we create space for ourselves? Yep. And now it's become commercialized. Mm -hmm. You know, it's become commodified. It's easy to do. You know, you don't need to invest into, you know, a real proper um, water for young people. You just say, here you have your containers and be entrepreneurial, do your pop-up shops, do your pop-up restaurant, cafe, and everything will fall into place by itself. It's not always true. Many people have an inclination of what the platform urban is about, but then it's also very fleeting and ephemeral. It's difficult to pinpoint. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we've said, well, you know, platforms are really about creating connections, bringing different interests together. And would there be a way that we could experiment ourselves with the potential of a platform, mm -hmm. precisely because platforms have this history mm -hmm. of actually creating alternatives. And so we started to invite all these people from around the world, mm -hmm. uh, who we know that they have been working on these issues. So like Susan uh, Moore and Scott Rogers, all, the, all those, or Jason Sadowski, all those had themselves started to also write about or instigate projects to broadcast, I think, on this station. You can hear a podcast. And so we invited them to blog about their everyday experiences of platform urbanism, and they've written about it. And, uh, and we said, well, you know, the great thing about the blog is that you don't have to write a, a kind of scholarly essay. <laughs> you can just write a short observation, like a diary almost. And then we've collected those, and we've kind of reworked them into these short video clips. They're not longer. Each one is not longer than two minutes. So mm -hmm. And you don't necessarily have to start at a particular point because they're just creating this kaleidoscope of everyday experience of platform urbanism. But wherever you would start, they would help you a little aspect of it, and then it comes together as a bigger picture of mm -hmm. what it means. 
so it's it's really interesting. So for instance, this one, everything in itself is just very small, but this is a, 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 a kind of street culture, if you will, has emerged to mark certain areas where you have the um, you create make signs where free Wi-Fi is available, and it has this particular expression too that in itself here. It's about, uh, it, it's a spray painting, but there's a particular expression actually for that. It's, it, is it chore marking or so that you mark, it's like a cold, mm -hmm. so it's like a, um, it's uh, a, chalk? a, it's like a, a graffiti in particular, but it's like, um, um, let me just look for that particular term. It's like an, it's like, a, it's like a clandestine code that's how it okay. emerged when people, when Wi-Fi was scared. Uh-huh. So people said, oh, you know, I make this mark and so that others know, oh, that's Wi-Fi. You know, you can get free Wi-Fi here. And so suddenly the world around us is structurally around access to Wi-Fi. Mm -hmm. Because when we talk about access, of course, it's great to have now platform and apps mm -hmm. and Literally, one of the challenges is also that the visible side of platform openness is mostly just apps. And there are millions of different apps, but what is an app? It just could be a service and it makes things easier, but essentially you need a, a phone mm -hmm. and you need power mm -hmm. so that your phone works. If your phone is dead, you won't have access. So it's as simple as that. So that starts with, you know, these signs, areas that have no connection to the internet are cut off from the new kind of society. So, and all that comes together, none of it it's in itself tells the whole story. Mm -hmm. You cannot tell it in a simple thing, but you need to think, bring all these different things together. And so that's so great about this, this very conventional, one could call it a classical gallery of images that are presented like in a gallery of paintings, mm -hmm. but they as I said, together, they then allow us to understand how all these different sides and how all those are necessary and how they then create this mm -hmm. universe of platform urbanism. I think what really got a, a thinking started about the way in which we want to set up an exhibition about platform urbanism was to think about how new information landscapes are being structured and the way in which yes. we relate to them. Because typically, you, if you think of a physical landscape, we know how to relate to them f physically, bodily, but also in the way in which we perhaps are, have an ownership, certain claim in relation to a particular place, but in relation to digital spaces and those that are much more uh, dispersed through platform technologies. We have a little sense about our own relationship to those and how we can situate ourselves in this informational landscape. And that's the reason why we were thinking about how the, about the instruments, the institutions that are currently the curators of that particular information landscape. And so platforms, as they organize public discourses, they are a most concrete example of who is actually curating that kind of landscape. And so we thought that, well, if you we, we organize an exhibition, you have the possibility to intervene in that particular way by also curating knowledge about um, particular aspects, particular um, pockets of that landscape. And that's why we are thinking about inviting people and having them tell us their own experiences about how they relate to particular aspects of platform urbanism where it started. 
but we also wanted to, to connect our thinking to a particular tradition of architectural writing mm -hmm. in terms of blog writing, which is very different from social media nowadays, to, if you think of Twitter and Instagram, but those media which are very much driven by visual formats with blogs. That was a much more open-ended way of articulating oneself, say, 15 years ago. And so we, we were inviting some well-known architectural bloggers like Owen Heatherly from the UK and mm -hmm. other people as well. But uh, we wanted to extend the circle to invite as many people as possible, come from different backgrounds, disciplinary backgrounds, generational backgrounds, uh, geographical backgrounds, to collect knowledge from uh, all around the world. So that's... So that was the systematic that informs how to set up this exhibition. And that's why we ended up having 60 different, or more than 60 different contributors assembled here in, in that space. That's, yeah, absolutely. I really like that about that because it really does create so much more access, um, you know, just with all these different perspectives. And actually what was really interesting is uh, both Teddy Cruz and Fauna Foreman, as well as um, Saskia Sassen has spoken at our events. And so it was nice to, to see them, that, you know, you yeah. also drawn a lot of inspiration from their work and, and kind of contributed to, to it here. Yeah, very much so. And, and Saskia Sassen is quite an uh, essential voice here mm -hmm. because one of the um, questions that often arises is of course also that well of course when you have developed this critical view on platform urbanism a lot of kind of worries about you know mm -hmm. what is happening what direction is evolving and Saskia Sassen then is a kind of you know as the grand dam of architectural uh, critique can step in and say yes all this critique is essential and all this that's important but really what it's not about uh, kind of um, creating this black and white scenario. It's not about that we need to completely oppose the commercial side, as she says, mm -hmm. uh, of platform urbanism. Sure. That would always be there, and it's probably good to have all this, also the commercial developers that offer us these services. It's just important that there's not just a monopole, that mm -hmm. you know, in terms of access, it can be a wide range of different providers of access, if you will. Absolutely. But if we create this monopole, then we need to start to worry. But you could, we could, they could, I think she says literally, different providers could coexist side by side. And it's actually what's much more difficult, she then continues, is in, when we think about these alternatives, again, there are very established understandings of an alternative format of access when you think about the clearly underprivileged, the clearly disempowered. But there are many in-betweens, those that are often overlooked that are also underprivileged, but are not so clearly visible as being poor as such. So actually we need to be much more sophisticated on the, on the side when we think about alternatives. That's not a clear setting. Mm -hmm. where we need to get active and where we would need to start thinking about other forms of alternatives. So maybe what what are some of the dangers then of really fragmenting access? Like, Well, what, what, I mean, one of the key questions, of course, is to do that access is not the given right. Mm -hmm. So it's a completely different starting point. In, you know, in, in a democratic understanding, there are universal human rights mm -hmm. that cannot be reduced, that are irreducible, that every human being with the moment one is born, one is emerges in, on, on planet Earth, there are certain rights that are not, cannot be externalized. Whereas access is something that is not pre-given. Access needs to be acquired. And how is it acquired? By becoming legitimized. You need to register, you need to create a profile, you need to become 
recognizable even. You need to become acknowledgeable. So you need to provide certain, whether it's in the form of data or whether it's in the form of certain characteristics, certain references that you can provide that you say, oh, I'm a citizen of somewhere. I have all this kind of credit that allows me to register. But I need to, I need to look for this credit, I need to create it, I need to document it, I need to establish it. So it's not something, we don't start from a level playing field. And of course, nobody ever does start from a level playing field. In any case, you're born into a particular class, into a caste, particular gender, you know, categories are ascribed to you, sure. one. So it's, of course, a, a long-standing history of unequal access. Mm -hmm. And we're not denying this, but here access becomes further complicated, if you will, that you, we need to get active. If you don't get active, and if you don't provide the features that you can be recognized as someone who deserves and, and, and can be granted access, you, you're already, you've already lost in a certain way. You will not be able. And now with, of course, the pandemic, with all the precautions that are, are taken uh, in different places, that you, you know, you, you, when you want to move, uh, you, need, you need to register, you know, unregistered movement is not possible or is not desired at the moment. All that already illustrates the challenges. If access is regulated by digital technology, which is data-based, because access is then uh, depending on the provision of certain sets of data. And in an analog city, I mean, in an ideal analog city, everybody could just enter and public space, and then it would just depend whether you would follow certain rules, certain behavior regulations. But if you would do that, you everybody would theoretically have the same provisions of access. But here it's different. It's ready before you even get to the point to enter that space. You need to uh, acquire the kind of, um, you need to require the license. As it were. So you need to become licensed. It's not a matter of rights, but it's a matter of licenses. And the, the question for us then was how to transform access from a purely managerial issue to a political question. Mm -hmm. And uh, that involves thinking about access not as restricting um, uh, access to something and regulating access to something, but offering access and demonstrating uh, a form of generosity, a form of solidarity, and rephrasing, reframing access as a form of, I don't know, friendship, love, but in the sense that, that it um, um, proposes, suggests, and uh, demonstrates some kinds of, or some, some qualities that uh, far beyond the, the metrics of what the regulation of, of access typically implies that you would count how many people would have that kind of particular kinds of access, particular tiers of access, but rather offering access to as many people or as diverse the population as, as possible. And that kind of political discussion is currently uh, <laughs> re 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 restrained. And um, so we were thinking, when we were talking about several issues with platforms and how they could be restructured to um, transform these different questions, the question of access, the question of uh, servicing cities, and how those aspects could be transformed into something else that would uh, make use of platforms in a much more open-ended manner. Yeah, one of, the, one of the key features of the way access is regulated today is that you need to be active. So activity is a, is a kind of measurement 
that, that, that uh, supports access. So all, a lot of the new kind of platform architecture is also kind of designed in such a way as to stimulate activities, to stimulate circulation, and through that circulation, uh, you know, data noise is created and that creates credits. So particularly people who are deemed unactive are falling out of access categories. So whether this is because you are not employed in an official way or you, you, you know you, 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 certain things that you do, don't do the presupposed way, then you're deemed inactive. And so that question, you know, what does it mean in society that is based on, on the aim and the ideal of activity? And so how values are generated purely through activity, through being always productive and always active, as you said. And that relates to the question between licenses and, and rights, because licenses are something that allow you to do something. Again, creating activity, whereas a right, you can also be inactive. You can be in an inoperative community, if you will. So is there a way that we can simply be? Is a possibility of, of simply being a community rather than constantly having to acquire your belonging through your activity. Mm -hmm. So I want to continue to the architectural Please. forms because that's really so, so important. So in a way, when, when we talk about you know, the activity, becomes the kind of um, leading motive of architectural design. Mm -hmm. What also becomes remarkable is that a lot of the activity is not geared to any particular purpose or any particular function. It's purely for, purely for the purpose of activity for its own sake. And so what kind of architecture then emerges there if there is no function almost, as we mm -hmm. conventionally understand it? So what we've done is that we've visited, you know, literally hundreds of different locations around the world of this new type of architecture, the container villages that we yep. spoke about. And you will see that there's a container village, you know, not just in Prague and in, in Vienna and in Amsterdam, but also in Lisbon and in, in Las Vegas, all places. And they all reference each other, so the Las Vegas container villages. Um, you know, uh, says, oh, you know, we, 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 we saw the Brixton container village and we think that's so great and we wanted to pre, uh, uh, reconstruct that. Then the Abu Dhabi one says, oh, you know, this is like the London one. And so they all connect to each other and they legitimize each other by referencing each other. And so what, what then if you, then in the, the technique of uh, a, a kind of collage analysis emerges is if you overlap and in the same way as platforms decontextualize their architecture also almost decontextualizes, but purely create a kind of scenario, a, a scene, a stage setting of these different um, architectural expressions particular kinds of, of also of um, formative and figurative patterns emerge. So we've realized that many of these places foreground an expression of greenery. Even though those are interior spaces, they're often furnished with plants. And they always inoculate. So you think, oh, you know, this is the new ecological paradise. You know, there is a way, we have climate crisis, but if we create all this wonderful green, environments in our offices, then, you know, we will have the ecological salvation, as it were. Right, right. And so all this creates, like, really, like, in a theater, creates a stage that appears to be very attractive to us. 
and we've then deciphered the different probes used for setting that stage. And that's what you see over here. This is, it's almost like a catalog book of new architectural yes. typologies. And you just can browse through the catalog. It's like a collection of patent drawings. And you can choose and pick and choose, if you will, you know. Mm -hmm. And oh, for, for if you want to have a, you know, a young startup environment and be, you know, young and trendy and be remain attractive, I choose from the catalog, you know, mm -hmm. a little bit of. Uh, we spoke with some people. They said it's very funny that it's all almost pre-industrial. So, handicraft yes. is very popular at the moment. Mm -hmm. So everything retro. And so even if it's a newly built industrial bench, mm -hmm. you kind of treat it in such a way that it appears to be like old century. And in the US in particular, they call it European farmhouse style. And all that nonsense. And so you can choose from this. And in an in a also in intriguing way, these props appear to be scaleless. So the headphones are equally important to allow for this co-working environment spread. Mm -hmm. If you have no headphones, you cannot use a co-working space. Mm -hmm. But you also need the coffee stop and the food corner and the food truck, the DIY furniture. But all they, how do they relate to each other? You know, some things are big, some things are small, and they are to create this kaleidoscope. And those are the, and literally actually often, um, um, treated in such a way that particular firms um, register patents on this. Because if you have this knowledge, like data knowledge on this, this allows you to become the global provider of, let's say, co-working spaces uh, or of co-living developments. You create your, you create the know-how. It's, it's, it's an architectural know-how that is actually built up through these patent drawings. But let me just go back to this uh, setting of the scene. Because what's, of course, clear is that this cannot just magically happen by itself. Mm -hmm. And so, as in any theater, there's the stage, but there's the backstage as well. Mm -hmm. And people, there's a lot of labor involved also. There's a real backstage in our world as well that helps to create what's on the stage to be seen. And so, this is how these two side galleries work together. It's like okay. this diptych of on stage and off stage, and they come together, okay. but we don't see them together. In most cases, we only look to the stage. We don't want mm -hmm. to look at the off stage. It's a, not such a nice world for many people. Okay. It's the distribution centers, the highways. Mm -hmm. Funnily enough, because we talked about the containers, the containers feature in both worlds. Mm -hmm. You have the colorful ones here, and you have the yep. gray ones, the battered ones over there. Mm -hmm. And so how can we, is there a way to reconcile these different worlds? To not just look at what's on stage, but also to look at what's off stage. And so that's the, I think the provocation articulated in this exhibition is how can we intervene in these two worlds, how they relate to each other. And that's why we have this first slogan at the front, we like, mm -hmm. that actually in platform urbanism, it relies, that relies on our co-production. And we can intervene in our imaginary. Okay. And so if we continue to yes, the, the kind of farewell, if you will, that the sure. visitor is given in the exhibition, uh -huh. it's, 
be like image bank, which is a very simple proposition. Is the world how we think about it is also relies on our on images, mm -hmm. on particularly in a mediated world, like in a platform world. So if we intervene in the way we imagine things, we might also be able to think about these things differently. And so platforms with the sense and the notion of co-production allows also to collectively co-produce this imaginary. Okay. So we're inviting people to simply post photographs that they've taken with their phones of any everyday situation and post those and then collect them and then similarly like perhaps in the, as we did with the collages, a new architectural language, a pattern language, if you will, to go back to architectural history, a pattern language of a new platform urbanism might emerge and might look very differently, you know, different kind of containers might be here, you know, populate this new great world. And so it's really interesting. I mean, we've only just started, yes, you know, it's very early days. But again, people are um, posting lots of gardens, uh, so areas that we really appreciate. So it's, um, yeah, it's really interesting to see what emerges in this kind of interaction and in these different ways. And so I think we've, we've positioned this, this kind of invitation next to the slogan of data is a relation of the property, because I think that's really the way to not just um, um, what's the term for that, not just say, oh, you know, platforms are all negative, you know, that mm -hmm. we don't want platforms, but platforms actually have a history of a bottom-up initiative. And one of the things to recuperate that is also to start to reframe, and that's what an art exhibition or an architecture exhibition can do, it can reframe certain connotations through representations. And the reframing of data is really important because data, now we only think about data in terms of property. Mm -hmm. And of course, property in English has this double connotation that it means characteristics and it also means commodity that can be traded. But it's apparently it's only a small step from property as characteristic to property as commodity, mm -hmm. as something that can be traded. But is data really a property or a characteristic or isn't data actually something that we as humanity create as an navigation tool to help us navigate the way we interact and how we coexist. So we have like a, it's, you could call it a grid mm -hmm. of, of a reference grid, if you will, that helps us to deal with each other. So if I know where XY is moving from A to B, then that's not just, that's not a characteristic of them, but I create data about this movement in order to be able to relate to that. So it's actually about the relation. And the big step forward when thinking about data as a reference is that then it's not a characteristic and it's also not the property that is owned by a sole entity or sole person, but the relation it always depends on two sides and it's actually collectively or publicly co-produced. So data is not owned by individuals, but data is always owned by those entities involved in that exchange, those entities that want to know of each other. And so that opens up a whole new plethora to think about platform urbanism completely differently. Totally. It's really incredible. I really like how you're, you're turning the, the tide on um, you know, how we are thinking talking about, about data, it, thinking yeah. about it, looking at it, and I think it's really 
really important and it was very, very timely type yeah. conversation. And so the big question is, of course, does it work when you present it in such a way? But we are really interested to hijack the platform aesthetics. Mm-hmm. So to create this Instagrammable. Mm-hmm. So the exhibition is yes. very Instagrammable. Yes. I hope. I definitely am guilty of Instagramming it. So yes, no, but yeah, I, But it's important because then you can intervene, you can you can you can uh, distribute a message mm-hmm. in a different way. And when we talked about this biennale as being a biennale of messages. Mm-hmm. And you know, I very much support Hashim Hashim Saki's stand that the Biennale needs to take on this role of being an ambassador. It's so important that the Biennale is not just saying, oh, you know, we're just indulging each other and look at us, what great things we do, but that we take a stand and we say, well, you know, architecture is interested in making this a better world. And we can do that. Together, we can do that. And to be such an ambassador, you need to have a message. And so that's how we hope this can tie in in kind of creating these representations mm-hmm. of messages that if people like to take a photograph, this is brilliant, and then it can replicate. And you yes. know, and suddenly people can say this as a sentence. So it creates a vocabulary. And it creates a collectively shared vocabulary that everybody can, not everybody, but you know, some people can say, well, I don't think data is a property, you know, we should not treat data as property that gets traded and I'm not happy if somebody just simply pays me for my data I want to be it understood as something that is actually a common good it's a commons, data is a commons and not it's not individual property you know, it's not a capitalist commodity per se it has been turned into a capitalist commodity but this involved, you know, law it involved many different steps to actually frame it as property it's not a pre-given it starts with framing us as individuals as being possessive individuals that all have certain characteristics that we own. But even that was a first step. You know, it's again not a given that we understand ourselves as separate individuals, with each individual having particular individual properties. You know, that's already you know a way of distinguishing between human beings. That's not a pre-given. And so I think this is very important to create this vocabulary. To me, I think that's why this ended up being one of my favorite pavilions installations, because it is so powerful in the way you presented it and just making statements that... We hope they are evocative. Yes. You know, the catalog that you're talking about, and you answered one of my big questions if if that was intended to be, um, you know, just a catalog or an assessment or an opinion or, you know, what, but the copy on it and just the the cheekiness of it was so good that I'm reading it and I'm like, wait, what's... This is funny. And it just... It made it really powerful. So not only yeah. that, but you used humor to connect yes. with people. And I think that's that's yeah. what, you know, what my biggest takeaway from it was that I left laughing, but also yeah. feeling like I fully agree with all of this. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, we, don't like, we don't love irony, but we love humor. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, me yeah. too. And I've really seen that many people have, uh, you know, respond that way, and that's really great to see. You know, yeah. that it's because at the end of the day, culture is also something that needs to be experienced. You know, this is a cultural event. Yes. But it's us as human beings. We spend our time. Uh, you know, we go mm-hmm. through, and also that counts as well. 
you know, we're not just an abstract machine that mm-hmm. walks through this exhibition. So how do we experience it? You know, mm-hmm. is it also providing some pleasure? That's important, I think. So, and I think also some of the pavilions do this really brilliantly. That they provide, they provide it with, you know, the, the kind of cultural. The, is it what is it? The, the senses, the sensual experience. Mm-hmm. You know, whether that's visual or that's through uh, in tactile senses, or through through, through audio. Mm-hmm. Walk through, and I think that's very important. That's what an exhibition can do. And so, you know, I'm sure you have your opinions about those uh, pavilions that are not so central. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. I, I like it when there's just one clear message that you really can walk away with, and there's just so many different applications of it. So if you don't understand one thing, there's another way you kind of get yeah. it. So it's it's very distributed in this mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. And I, I think there's you know there's tons of little gems. Here. Yeah, it's about the layering. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Maybe a more personal question. Is there an app you, uh, either of you, spend time on yourselves? Uh, well, very simple ones, really. In terms of uh, when we talk about navigation, I think navigation tools and navigation apps are, are ones that people sure. use in particular. So I'm not really guilty, but simply using Google Maps as an app, presumably. That's probably true. Common ones. But I think it's uh, a generational thing. And I know from uh, our students that they, on an everyday basis, you know, they have pages and pages and pages of apps that they use. Mm -hmm. And they're constantly updating the apps and they're constantly using new apps every all the time. And so there's also uh, people talk about, well, the the short-lifedness of some of these apps. Mm -hmm. So what does it mean about sustainability? Apps are created and investment is, is, is undertaken, but then the app disappears very quickly. And what's the, mm-hmm. what about the people involved in that? You know, people work for that. Their services are offered on a platform. Mm-hmm. And so if you had a look at the book, and I'm not sure whether I had time to read it, but in the introduction, we write about platforms as kind of member clubs. So we compare them to a club, mm-hmm. like an old-fashioned British club almost. Sure. And so you, you, as when you register, you become a member of that club. And so the, all your livelihood is tied to that club. But what happens if somebody, other providers and other partners change their provider, mm-hmm. suddenly you're excluded because you're on the wrong app and you're on with the wrong. And right. so to think about how with apps and actually also labor is involved, but we have that's a good point. Yeah. That's very true. What um, do you think we will be? No. Or what will our monument be for this moment in time? Shipping uh, containers? I suppose we have, um, we actually structured the, the contribution by the bloggers in seven different chapters. Uh-huh. And one of the chapters bears the title um, Monuments of Circulation, I is Everywhere. And so I think the, the question is really, I, I suppose the, the, the monuments of our time are atomized monuments and they are documentations of our own circulation. So we are active, we are alive because we circulate. So it's all these Instagrams, it's all these little depictions of us, of I. So it's really the monument of I. So 
what is the Biennale for? If not to influence and provide access to new ideas and ways of viewing architecture in the spaces we share. The curation behind both Austrian and British pavilions share a common thread of accessibility. Their immersive interventions help the viewer experience what accessibility means and questions its limits. The installations communicate in a way that is comprehensible to a wider audience, all while being visually appealing. I would like to personally, and on behalf of Recite, thank you all for tuning in and taking this journey with us as we navigate building a podcast in the midst of a pandemic. After this episode, we will be taking a summer break um, for the coming months and returning in autumn 2021 with a bigger, better, and longer season three. We've loved getting to create this podcast, and we hope that you've been enjoying it just as much. Reaching a new audience on a new platform with the same mission, elevating people and ideas to improve the urban environment in the middle of a pandemic has been what we feel an important action. Also important to us is that these ideas remain accessible and free. As a nonprofit, we are only able to produce this podcast thanks to the generous support of the City of Prague, the Czech Ministry of Culture, corporate sponsors, private philanthropists, and our network of passionate architecture and city lovers like you. If you would like to support us as a patron, sponsor, or strategic partner, please get in touch with us at podcast at resite.org. Your support allows us to continue sharing ideas to inspire more livable, lovable cities. Design in the City is a Recite production, and Recite is a global nonprofit connecting people and ideas to improve the urban environment. This episode was directed and produced by myself, Alexander Sipitval, with the support of Radka Ondrachkova, Martin Berry, Anna Stava, and Nicholas Zellers, as well as Nano Energies and the Czech Ministry of Culture. It was edited by Andiel Sound Studio in Prague. Thank you.